Section 18 of Gallipoli Diary. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sue Anderson. Gallipoli Diary by John Graham Gillum. Section 18. October 11th to 31st, 1915. October 11th. Very cloudy. Mule Corps at end of promontory gets shelled at 10 o'clock for half an hour. Starts to rain at 11.30 and looks as if it is going to set in in earnest. Salt Lake already under water in some parts, and if we have a season of rain, it will be a lake in the full sense of the word, and it will be difficult getting supplies, etc., to the lines immediately in front of Chocolate Hill. Walked up with way again to Brigade Headquarters, Beautiful, cool, sunny afternoon after the rain. Had tea with the general at 88th, meeting there our friend of last night, Colonel Eakin. Morris, machine gun officer, also there in great form, telling us all about his indirect gunfire stunts. Hides these little batteries in a very clever way with gorse, the men wearing green masks. Colonel Fuller, going round the trenches the other day, could not make out where the sound of a machine-gun popping off quite close to him was coming from. He was ten yards away only. It was one of Morris's efforts. After the bit of a bombardment the other day on the pimple, during which the Turks were driven out of a redoubt, Morris's men bagged fifty Turks by indirect fire. He makes your flesh creep by the cold-blooded way in which he describes his stunts. But if one thinks of Turks as partridges, it is not so bad. However, we can do with dozens more Morrises. After, go to see 86th, and have a rag with a little reed, signal officer to 86th, aged 19, but looks only 16. Trenches dug through most beautiful country, olive groves, fig trees, and vineyards. Grape season over now, but often Tommy climbed out of his trench and helped himself risking Turkish bullets fired at only a hundred yards away. The blackberry season is now on, and they are so tempting that venturesome spirits, little Reed himself proving guilty, climb out after these also. Looking back from the 86th Brigade headquarters, one can see the gorse-covered hills, the beautiful thickly wooded valleys, while through the trees are peeps of Suvla Bay, with the gray warships at anchor there. Further out, beautiful Imbros stands out sharp against the setting sun, backed by a sky of golden bronze, with feathery purple clouds trailing across the firmament. The new moon, a delicate crystal crescent, swings above, dimly reflected in the dimpling waters. A battleship flashes out, followed by a loud report, and, looking towards Anafarta just over the hills, one sees a monster flash of fire, followed by a muffled report. October 12th. Very busy with shelling this morning. Quite a lot of 5-9 shrapnel coming over to our valley, and almost every shell accounts for a casualty. About 20 casualties in half an hour, Sir Randolph Baker being amongst the number. But he was only wounded slightly, and a rather nice naval landing officer had a piece taken out of his arm. Also, we had a few 4-7 shells over, and at noon they started with their 8-2, a terrifying shell. Everyone this morning very depressed at the news of the advance of Germans on Serbia, 
and Bulgaria's attitude. Greece and Romania are disappointing factors. I hope for the sake of this Gallipoli campaign that they come in on our side. After lunch I go up to the barrier on the rise of ground on the west road leading to Lone Tree Gully, just 200 yards this side, to see about some bombs which have to be removed. On the way back, the 18-pounder battery, which is in position on the right of the road looking seaward, is in action, and the report of the guns being so near is ear-splitting. I turned round to watch the shrapnel, beautifully placed on and about the Turkish second line. Evidently, the officer in the observation post has spotted some movement of the troops up communication trench. Probably a relief party. I turned to my left and tripped down the rocky hillock leading to the Commander Royal Engineers Camp, in the place where Division Headquarters was to be after the Chocolate Hill Battle, and where the bombs from the barrier have to go. I come back along the lower road, which leads to our Division Headquarters, and which is now called the Gibraltar Road, as it leads to the small hill we have called Gibraltar, which lies between our first line and 86th Headquarters. On the way back I meet the 88th chaplain, and we walk back together. Behind us we hear three tremendous explosions over to the left of Chocolate Hill, and, looking back, see columns of smoke and dust. They are caused by Turkish aerial torpedoes bursting in our front line, equivalent to a hundred-pound shell and terribly effective. Fortunately, they appear to have very few of them, but we have none at all. There have been 63 casualties on the beach today through Turkish gunfire and shrapnel. At night a great gale springs up and we have heavy rain, many men being washed out of their dugouts, having to spend the night in their wet clothes on the hills. A Navy's battalion has arrived. October 18th. A fine day, but a very strong cold wind blowing down the peninsula, Arthur McDougall has now rejoined his regiment in the trenches. We have now a black cat in our establishment. It walked in, and we do not know where it came from. Probably off one of the boats. We were shelled with five nine at eight this morning, and had six casualties in this valley. They were, however, very quiet for the rest of the morning. Just as Way, Cox, Baxter, and I were leaving for brigade, they started to shell, and we were glad to get off the open space of the beaches. Now they have three guns firing 5-9 shrapnel at us, and they come over in threes, usually bagging somebody. The Turks seem to be getting very cocky lately. They actually cleared away all the barbed wire that one of our battalions in the 88th had put in front of our trenches, only 15 yards in front. Also, their bombing parties are getting very daring creeping up each night to within throwing distance of our trenches. Barbed wire lines and trenches are now being constructed further back towards the coast, in case. As we are up at brigade headquarters, we notice one of our aeroplanes swoop down onto the Salt Lake, obviously having to make a forced landing. A short pause, during which we notice the pilot and observer climb out, when suddenly shrapnel bursts over the machine and very near it is quickly followed by another and another and later high explosive shells when the pilot and the observer scurry away pretty quickly they are wise for the turkish artillery are now well on to the machine 
which is rapidly becoming a helpless wreck. I should think they put a hundred shells on that machine before they stopped. October 14th. Last night they tried to disturb our rest by putting one shell over to us every hour. One seemed to come very near our dugout, but we were too sleepy to bother. What's the good? At eight this morning they get very busy again with their shelling, and at nine three of the big deadly shrapnel come over at once, followed a few minutes after by three more, and then later still another three. It is evident that they cannot spare very many of these every day, but after each bout the cry of stretcher-bearers is shouted down the valley. Shortly after the wounded are carried away to the hospital, and this scene has now become a painfully familiar one. It is very cold today, and the gale still continues, hampering the Navy's work of landing stores. The afternoon was quiet. A great gale sprang up at dark and blew hard all night. It is now very cold. One consolation, flies are dying off. October 15th. Today has been cold and cloudy with a strong wind. Artillery duels all day, with ships joining in. We were shelled this afternoon, but fortunately today had no 5-9 shrapnel. Cox and Gennison came to tea, and Walker and myself walked back with them. Called in at brigade headquarters. Hear that now we are at war with Bulgaria. October 16th. At 5 this morning, dawn, the Turks began a general bombardment chiefly on our right, Chocolate Hill, and at Anzac. But the subsequent attack on their part seemed to die away quickly. No news as to results. At 11 a.m. an enemy airplane sails over. Our two anti-aircraft guns on shore start firing and make such good practice that the machine quickly gets out of range and sails over towards Anzac, disappearing suddenly into the clouds. Many thought she had been brought down, and a great cheer goes up and clapping of hands. Shortly after, however, she is seen coming back over the bay once more, flying low. HMS Glory and Canopus fire with their anti-aircraft guns, but wide of the mark. She turns and sails up inland once more, perilously close to our shore anti-aircraft guns, which make excellent practice. One shell bursts dangerously near the machine, whereupon she dives swings to the right, and, climbing again, sails over Chocolate Hill. When over our trenches, heavy rifle and machine-gun fire break out at her, but she sails calmly on over Seri Bear to her base beyond in safety. Result? Honors with the enemy pilot. A damned cool customer, but a very nasty trip for him. It lasts under ten minutes, so that he has not much time for observing, but no doubt enough for his purpose. The rest of the day we have the usual artillery duels, rather heavier than usual, and at 3.20 p.m. and again at 5, we have our usual shelling by our old friend, Whistling Rufus. October 17th. At 9 this morning, the Turks very heavily bombarded our reserve lines and our batteries on our left. They were very prodigal of ammunition, showing that their supply had been replenished, probably from Bulgaria. They put in some very large stuff, nine inch at least, and at very long range. Our batteries and ships were active in reply. It is cold and windy and raining. 
went up to brigade with Way and later to 86th, where the Padre was holding Sunday service. Beach shelled a little while we were away. Tomorrow is the great Mohammedan feast day, and we expect a general attack on the part of the Turks. October 18th. Rainy morning, bit of shelling in morning and early afternoon, but not very damaging shells. At four they started dropping large shells, about eleven inch, which whistled over with a tremendous shriek and burst with a thunderous crack. They must have come a long way, as we could not hear the report of the gun. They were bursting too near for our liking, and we were glad when they stopped. Some say they came from the Goban. They finished up their bout with five-nine shrapnel. So far, no attack by the Turks. News that Sir Ian Hamilton is going and that General Monroe is taking his place reaches us. October 19th. A quiet morning, but at four we were shelled as usual. Not much damage. October 20th, 2 p.m. Quiet so far today, except for a bit of shelling this morning. News reaches us that the 10th Division, who were here in August, are at Salonica, whether interned or not, we do not know. Turkish festival still on, and I believe it ends tomorrow. They make a row in their trenches at odd times of the day by the shouting of Allah and the ringing of bells. Sometimes our men, for a joke, throw jam tins full of jam into the Turkish trenches. This happening today, the Turks thought that we were throwing bombs instead of four harmless tins of jam, and they promptly threw back two bombs whereupon we have to throw six bombs back. This quieted them. Later, however, they threw the four jam tins back, empty, having eaten their contents. October 21st. A very heavy gale blowing all day from the northwest. Sky heavy with rain, but wind too high to allow rain to fall. Heavy shelling all morning for three hours without stopping, and again in afternoon. None near our patch. We get the shrapnel, however, from Whistling Rufus, which is more comprehensive. Enemy airplane, in spite of gale, is over this morning. Anti-aircraft guns fire and miss. October 22nd. A great gale blew all night and is still blowing. Cold and cloudy. Artillery duels going on as usual. Not much shelling on this beach. At four, we have three of the five-nine shrapnel over our little corner. One could not hear them coming because of the gale. October 23rd. Beaches shelled a bit this morning. Gale continues all day, and it is very cold. Soon after four, we are shrapneled once more, having about ten large ones over in a period of half an hour, causing casualties. The gale prevents anybody hearing them coming. Go up to brigade headquarters, and it is hard work walking against the wind. Country looking bleak and miserable. Come back on motor ambulance. At night I am up to the Commander Royal Engineers Nulla, forming a forward dump of reserve rations. We have to work in a cold, driving rain. October 24th. Gale still continues. Flights of birds, which had collected in great numbers some few days ago, now seem all to have left. Has been raining all morning. Very little shelling from Turks. Go up to brigade headquarters and have tea. Gale dies down towards evening. Beautiful coloring of sky over the sea. A background of gray rain clouds. Golden buff colored strips of sky, gray sea, 
against which are silhouetted sepia-colored trees and gorse bushes. Imbros, now gray as the sea, is always in the picture, the eternal picture in which is painted our monotonous life on Gallipoli. We are waiting, waiting with no news, and some of us are saying, with no hope. These latter, however, suffer from tummy troubles. October 25th. Six months ago today I landed at Hellas. It seems like six years. Today we are still an hour's walk from the sea to the front trenches at all three landings. This morning is a cool, beautiful summer morning. Flies seem to come again from somewhere, but not so bad as before, yet sufficient to be called a pest in England. Usual artillery duels all day, and we are shrapneled again in the afternoon. At 6 p.m. go up to Commander Royal Engineers Dump about the reserve rations we are putting there. Cloudy evening. October 26th. A cool, fine morning, rather cloudy. Birds again flying in large coveys overhead. Wild geese and crane, etc. Men fire at them, though it is strictly against orders. Hardly any artillery duels in morning. Go up to Commander Royal Engineers Dump with Major Fraser and later, leaving him, go on to brigade and have tea. Adjutant of Worcesters, who was wounded in the landing in April, and who has been back in England, was there. We who have been out here all the time look upon those who have been back in England with great interest. After tea, Morris, the machine-gun officer, takes me out to see his machine-gun emplacements on Gun Hill, which is a little hill lying some two hundred yards behind our front-line trenches, the ground on its left rising steeply to the high ridge overlooking the sea, and on its right sloping gently down to the lowland. We passed the Worcester Regiment in the reserve trenches dug in an open space on the left of Brigade Headquarters, looking inshore. Then we passed down a communication trench, coming out into an open space behind a small mound called Gibraltar, round which we passed down a slope leading to a rocky ravine filled with large boulders, a few trees, and patches of thick gorse bush. There the Hampshire Regiment are dug in. To the left of the ravine are a few graves, and now and again a bullet kicks up the dust close by them. Smith, the Hampshire Quartermaster, jokingly informs me of a certain way of getting a cushy, blighty wound. If I want one, all I have to do is stand by these graves after dark and wait. In under two hours, most probably in five minutes of waiting, I shall get one in the leg. The bullets come from a Turkish trench high up on the cliff side on our left front. To the right of the ravine one is safe, protected by a rise in the ground. On the left of the ravine one is in constant danger of a smack from a bullet, and more so at night. We continue our way, passing down another trench, and shortly after come out into the open in a lovely glade of grass and trees, situated in dead ground, protected by a little hill in front called Gun Hill. On its slopes we once more enter a trench, which encircles the hill, very similar to the ramparts of an ancient castle. It is a little fortress on its own, standing aloof from the system of trenches situated behind our front line, but in front of our support line, yet blending in with the uneven lie of the land, thereby not making a conspicuous target. At intervals are machine-gun emplacements, with machine-guns in position, 
pointing through apertures in the sandbag breastwork. At the first that we come to, we find the sentry not looking out. I shall never forget the frightened look on his face as it meets Morris's suddenly appearing around the corner of the sandbagged wall a few inches from him. He gets a stiff strafing. We continue our way, and at the next emplacement come upon a sentry who presents a unique object, for his head is covered by a sandbag, through which are holes made for his eyes and mouth. To this headgear are fixed sprigs of gorse bush, and as he stands stock still, with his head and shoulders filling the gap in the breastwork, it must be impossible for an enemy observer to detect his presence from the background of gorse and trees yet if he is detected a sniper has him for a dead certainty it is so far safe for such sentries however for up to now no casualties have occurred amongst them from a sniper's rifle morris asks is everything okay and the sentry without looking round replies all's well sir i stand beside the sentry and look at the view in front of me a beautiful view of sloping hills up to the heights of the cliffs which overlook the sea and on their slopes I see distinctly the irregular light brown lines of thrown-up earth, denoting the Turks' front-line trenches, and ours running opposite each other to the summit of the cliffs, about three hundred yards apart. We are six hundred yards from the enemy line, and can be certain victims for a Turkish sniper, should he be aware of our presence. From this position at night, sometimes the Turk receives the contents of belt after belt of machine-gun ammunition poured on to his second and third line and communication trenches by indirect fire ranged by day causing him great inconvenience and to wonder from where the bullets come our front line is always warned when any such stunt is on so that they may not arrange for their working parties or patrols to be out in front looking at the country in front of me I can see that here on these rugged slopes the Turk would have but short shrift if he attacked us, as, of course, would we if we attacked. Result? Deadlock. Like two cats spitting and sparring at each other. Morris says he is always pleased to show people round his pet hobby. I was immensely interested, and Morris might have been showing me round a farm. We come back in the gloaming, Morris now and again stopping to order paper and litter to be picked up, for General Delisle is around here frequently and has the eye of a hawk. October 27th. A fine morning with a very warm and strong wind, almost a gale blowing from the sea. Smith of Hampshire's pays us a visit, and as we sit in our dugout we hear whistling Rufus coming over from Sari Bear. One corner of the roof over our dugout is only of tarpaulin, for corrugated iron is scarce. Rumor says that a ship which set out from England, loaded with corrugated iron, has been torpedoed and sunk. An officer newly arrived, who is sitting with us, appears to rather scorn my advice to move from where he is sitting under the tarpaulin, which is of no protection to him from shrapnel bullets, when crash from whistling Rufus is heard overhead, and the sound of bullets spattering on our roof follows immediately after, just as if an unseen hand with a bowl of pebbles had taken a handful and thrown them with violence down on our abode. A shirt hanging outside on a line to dry receives two bullets through its tail, causing large rents. 
the new officer immediately gets up from where he is sitting and comes round to our side of the table where we sit under a roof of corrugated iron with a layer of sandbags on top safe from everything but a direct hit this five nine shrapnel is followed by others and in the distance we hear the roar of turkish artillery and bursting shrapnel whistling rufus ceases worrying us after a while and we go up to behind our dugout to look inland at the Turkish shelling. All along our line and behind, Turkish shrapnel is bursting thickly, being more concentrated over Chocolate Hill and on Hill 10, which is situated on the left of the Salt Lake and half a mile from B Beach. About half an hour after, we hear rifle fire, which dies down quickly and all is quiet. What it was all about I do not know, probably the end of the Turkish festival. Or, probably, Enver Pasha has paid a visit, and, sitting on top of Seri Bear, has asked for a show to be demonstrated to him. I must say, such a show, viewed from the top of Seri Bear, must appear a wonderful sight. October 28th. A hot, sultry day, and the flies a pest. A very quiet morning, no news. Hardly any shelling on the part of the Turk, but our artillery and ship's guns fairly active. I go up to brigade headquarters to tea, and after, on the way back, call in at the 88th Field Ambulance, situated in a tent encampment on a plateau lying between Karakol Doe and the Turkish positions. Here the situation is most interesting. The white tents and marquees are in full view of the Turks, and not a shot comes near, for John Turk plays the game. It is almost like living in a garden city, with the open country all round, and the feeling one gets is very odd, so near to war and yet so far. Patients rest quite at their ease in their walls of canvas, while over their heads, singing their dread song, the Turkish shells pass on their way to the beaches. October 29th a hot day and flies very trying turks busy with artillery at chocolate hill and anzac our artillery busily replying nothing our way heard firing off coast of bulgaria last night our artillery have been very active all day and are still firing although it is dark we have now several new batteries ashore and for the past few days the turk has been very quiet we had only two shells over our way today our artillery seems to be getting well on top. Monroe has arrived. All good luck to him. Now, perhaps, we shall get a move on. We feel now either move on or off. But heaven defend us from the inaction and waste of time of the last six months. Stuart has gone off, suffering very badly with dysentery. He was stubborn about it and would not see the doctor until at last he had to be carried off on a stretcher. I shall miss him very much, as he was good company. October 30th. A hot summer day, and flies a plague. The division has sustained a sad loss today. Algy Wood of the Essex has gone west. He had been through everything since the landing, and at noon today was shot in the throat while in the support trench near his orderly room. He became a friend of mine as he became a friend of all he met, and I have often referred to him in my diary. 
he just had time to say to his sergeant major who went to him i'm finished sergeant major and then died a name that will never be forgotten by the survivors of the twenty ninth division nearly all the best have gone now lord howard de walden comes into our dugout in the evening and has a chat he is our deputy assistant adjutant and quartermaster general and very popular Monroe is a shorter day with staff for a powwow at Ninth Corps headquarters. No news from Salonica. October 31st. Another summer day. Hardly any shelling on our part, and absolutely none on the part of the Turk. And so ends October, a monotonous, dreary month. Phew! How many more such months? End of section 18.